So we're continuing with Paul's second letter to Timothy. And this may well be the last letter that Paul ever wrote. Uh, Paul had laboured for many years, proclaiming the good news of Jesus and building the church. And now, as he awaits execution in a prison cell in Rome, he's entrusting his ministry to Timothy. He's handing Timothy the baton. And this morning, we're picking up on a theme that is central in all of Paul's letters, and, and that is this idea of salvation, the concept of being saved. Verse 9 says, He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. We often hear about being saved or salvation, uh, but what does it actually mean? Well, this morning we're going to look at three questions. Uh, what are we saved from? Uh, what are we saved by? And what are we saved for? What are we saved from, by, and for? So firstly, what are we saved from? Well, when we talk about being saved in the general sense, I think most of us can understand uh, what we mean. So if I were to say that, that Mark saved me from being run over by a car, you might assume that he pulled me out of the way. Or if I had said that my father had saved me from bankruptcy, uh, you'd probably understand that he paid my debt. Well, when we talk about being saved uh, in the spiritual sense, we're talking about being saved uh, from death and separation from God. And this is where it can get a bit tricky, uh, because I think many in our culture uh, don't feel that death and separation from God is something uh, that they deserve. So uh, why should they need saving from it? In fact, it's probably fair to say uh, that most people don't think about these things uh, too often. But if you were to ask the question, I think most people would struggle to see why they need saving. Someone said to me recently, well, if there is a God, I'm a good person, I'll go to heaven. And I think that is fairly typical of how people in our culture think. We tend to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. Uh, I saw an advert on TripAdvisor for Gino's Trattoria. It's an Italian restaurant in Sydney. And there were only two reviews on the, on the page, and the first said this, Best pizza and pasta in Sydney. Everything is fantastic. Can't fault this restaurant. It is very clean, service excellent, food is excellent. They make you feel like one of the family. Highly recommended. The second review said this. Win surprise. Absolute worst pizza, minimum effort. Frozen bought in ingredients, woolly select barbecue sauce. One chef takes 50 minutes per pizza. 12 slices in a family pizza. Ha! because they cut them so tiny. Incredible how little you care. So which one of those reviews do you think Gino is going to agree with? He's going to go with the first one, isn't he? In fact, he'll probably completely disregard uh, the second review. He'll, he'll ignore it. He'll ignore that bad review. And I think we have a tendency to do that with the sin in our lives. We overlook it. We trivialise it. We rationalise it. Uh, we justify it, we try and sweep it under the carpet, we do pretty much anything we can to avoid uh, admitting that we're in the wrong. But the Bible is very clear, we are all sinful. There's no getting away from it. And verse 9 uh, tells us that we're called to a holy life. But if we're called to a holy life, uh, what are we being called out of? What are we being called away from? Well, we're being called away from an unholy life. Uh, we're the restaurant owner who really does deserve that stinking review. And going from a, an unholy life to a holy life 
uh, means doing a complete U-turn. Of course, we'll never be uh, really holy in this life. It's more to do with our direction of travel. It's like we're heading in one direction away from God, and we're called, and then we start heading in the opposite direction towards God. You see, heading away from God uh, leads to death. Death is the, uh, is the just punishment or consequence of our sin and rebellion against God. And I'm not talking about the kind of death sentence that human beings impose on each other. I'm not talking about the guillotine on the electric chair. Uh, by death, I mean a spiritual death or a separation from God. But it's obvious really, isn't it? If we're heading away from God, then we will be separated from God. But the opposite of death is life. And God offers us new life, resurrection life, everlasting life through his son Jesus. This is very good news. This is very good news. So what are we saved from? We're saved from death and separation from God. So the next question, what are we saved by? Well, in a sense, the question should really be, who are we saved by? And the obvious answer is Jesus. Uh, but what is it about God's character that caused him to save undeserving sinners like you and I by sending his son, Jesus? Well, verse 9 uh, tells us we're saved and called to a holy life, not because of anything that we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. So we're saved by grace. In other words, we can't take any credit. We're completely undeserving. By saving us from sin and death, uh, God is giving us something that we have absolutely no right to. And again, I think our culture really struggles with this because uh, we like to think that we're deserving of things. Uh, I think it's fair to say that we probably live in a culture of entitlement. The advertising industry is a particularly good barometer of this. Uh, for a long time now, advertisers have been selling us things on the basis that we're entitled to them. We've earned them. We deserve them. But the oldest example I could find of this was from the 1950s. It was for Formica kitchens. It said, you deserve a Formica kitchen and extra help in every room. And then there was this one from Hewitt. Go ahead. You deserve it. And then Barclays Premier. Again, you deserve it. And this relatively recent ad from McDonald's. You deserve a Mega Mac. I'm not sure what I did to deserve that. But, uh, <laughs> we start to believe this stuff. But the truth is, we don't deserve anything. We don't deserve to live in luxury any more than a family living in a slum in Nairobi deserves to live in poverty. God owes us nothing. God owes us nothing. And we can never understand grace until we can break out of this entitlement mentality. The good news is that God is a loving and gracious Father. He owes us nothing, but he offers us everything. And that brings us to our final question. What are we being saved for? Well, the end of verse 9 and, and verse 10 says this. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought immortality to light through the Gospel. The first thing to note is that God's grace was given before the beginning of time. God is loving and gracious by nature. 
He's also omniscient. He's all-knowing. So his plan was always to give us grace through his son Jesus. Uh, This is not a contingency plan that God had to employ when creation took a terrible turn for the worse. God knew that we would sin. And his plan was always to provide a way for us to be saved from the just consequences of our sin. But in answer to the question, what are we being saved for? We're being saved for life and immortality. For life and immortality. It's interesting, it's as if we all have a sense that we're not meant to die. Uh, We have a sense of a deeper reality. Uh, It's as if deep down we know that we're created for eternity. The problem is that we, and by we I mean human beings in general, we try and achieve immortality on our own terms, independently of God. Simon Cowell of X Factor fame, he said this, medical science is bound to work out a way of bringing us back to life in the next century or so, so I want to be available when they do. But in reality, we don't have any more control over death than we've had at any other point in history. We, we can, in some cases, delay it by a few years, but that's all. But we don't need medical science to find a way of bringing us back to life. Because Jesus has already achieved that for us through his death and his resurrection. Jesus has destroyed death. There were some translations put it, Jesus has abolished death. I love that. Jesus has abolished death. If we want life and immortality, we need look no further than Jesus. I used to take uh, a lot of funerals, and there were a couple of occasions uh, when the family asked for the song My Way by Frank Sinatra to be played. And as you'll know, the, uh, the most memorable line from that song is, I did it my way. And I never allowed that song to be played, and I had to explain my reasons as sensitively as I could to the family. Uh, because the lyrics of that song actually express the opposite to the Christian message. We can't do it our way. Our way leads to death and separation from God. There is only one way to achieve immortality, and that is the way of the cross. We can't be saved by our own effort, or by our own means, or uh, by being a good person, because in reality none of us are good in the truest sense of the word. We can only be saved through Jesus. And salvation is only possible at all because God is a loving and gracious God. So when we give our lives to Jesus, we're we're saved and uh, we're called to a holy life, a life that begins now and lasts for eternity. But we need to be careful. This doesn't mean that when we become a Christian, we suddenly become holy. If we think that, then we'll be judgmental and condescending. In fact, we'd just be unbearable. Remember that when we're called, we change direction. We begin a process that begins now and will be completed beyond the grave when we rise to new life with Jesus. And I want to use an analogy which I hope will uh, tie together all that we've been looking at this morning. So uh, in the UK, where I'm from, uh, a lot of houses have fireplaces and chimney stacks. And uh, when my brother and I were quite small, I was probably only about four, uh, my dad removed the chimney stack from our house. It was quite a big job. He, He worked right through the night. And in the morning, he put all the bags of soot at the end of the garden. He cleaned himself up and he went to bed. That morning, 
uh, my brother and I found the bags of soot at the end of the garden. And we opened the bags of soot. And we had a wonderful time playing in the soot, throwing it up in the air, throwing it at each other, rolling around in it. For the purpose of this uh, analogy, the soot is sin. Imagine the soot being sin. Well, eventually, my mother called us in uh, for lunch. And she had no idea what was going on at the end of the garden. She got quite a shock, I can tell you. Uh, but if we ignored my mum and continued playing in the soot, there's no way we could have entered the house. I mean, how could we? We would still be at the end of the garden playing in the soot. In the same way, if we ignore God's call on our lives, if we disregard him, how can we ever enter his kingdom? But my brother and I did respond to my mum's call and uh, we approached the back door, probably with our heads hanging down, we, we I'm sure realised that uh, we've done something we shouldn't have. Uh, and in terms of our analogy, it's important to note that we can only approach God because Jesus has died on our behalf. We are sinful, we deserve death, Jesus has died in our place, he's paid the penalty for all our sin and our wrongdoing. So we can approach God, and when we give our lives to Jesus, God can look at us as if we've never sinned, even though we have. But God still wants to deal with all the stuff that is wrong in our lives. So when my brother and I approached the back door, uh, do you think that my mum led us straight into the house? No way. There's no way we could go in and eat at her table while we were covered head to toe in soot. We had to be cleaned up. With my mum, uh, in the same way, uh, we need to be cleaned up. We need to be prepared for an eternity spent with God. We, that's why, or one of the reasons why, we're called to a holy life. When my mum was cleaning us boys, there were two phases. There was the, uh, the pre-wash outside with a bucket and a broom. And then there was the, uh, the, the slightly more uh, in-depth wash in the bath with soap and a flannel. And when we turn to Jesus, we begin a process of being cleaned up. Phase one happens in this life. Right now, we are in the yard getting scrubbed down with a broom. We won't get fully clean, but we'll get cleaner. And so it is with our Christian life. Uh, we'll never be perfect in this life, but we should certainly see a difference. And the more we get to know Jesus, the more of a difference we see in our lives. And this process, if you want the theological term, is called sanctification, and it's completed when we go to be with Jesus forever. That's phase two. Now, for my mum, phase two of the clean-up operation, with me and my brother in the bath, uh, that was quite a long and arduous process. When we meet Jesus face to face, we'll be made perfect in an instant. And finally, in terms of the analogy, uh, my mum was not cleaning us up because we were good. I can assure you my brother and I uh, were not good boys. She was cleaning us up because she loved us. She wanted to restore us and she wanted us to go into the house and eat with her. What are we being saved from? We're being saved from death and separation from God, which is the just penalty for our sin and our wrongdoing. What are we being saved by? We're being saved by the grace of God. We can do nothing to merit our salvation. We can do nothing to earn it or deserve it. We can't be good enough for it. We just have to receive it as a free gift 
of God's grace. What are we being saved for? We're being saved for life and immortality. A right relationship with God that begins now and lasts forever. And you know, uh, there's a wonderful irony to all this. That is, we think we deserve everything, and yet we put our hopes in things that, uh, that simply won't deliver in the long term. When in reality, we don't deserve anything, and yet we're offered life and immortality as a free gift of grace. This is good news. This is the gospel. No wonder uh, Paul was unashamed about proclaiming it. No wonder Paul was uh, willing to suffer for it. No wonder uh, he was determined to pass it on to the next generation. This really is the best news. What could be more important than this? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we acknowledge that we are not good in the truest sense of the word. When compared with your goodness, your holiness, your perfection, we are certainly not good. And we don't deserve the love and the grace uh, that you lavish on us. But we pray this morning we can, we can understand this concept of grace, the concept that you owe us nothing but give us everything. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we receive this gift this morning. We thank you that you have died for us, died in our place. We thank you that you uh, give us the, the free gifts of forgiveness, life, immortality, and we praise your name for it. Thank you, Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.